Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and truth. A man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You can't handle the truth! Now, here's David Fiorazzo. Good morning, friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ and the remnant of truth proclaimers and defenders. Another edition of Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you so much for tuning in. A jam-packed show today on a very important topic, Kingdom Now Theology. What is it, and where does it come from, and how do we get sucked into that as the Church? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and open up. Father, thank you for giving us another chance to serve you and, and speak the truth about these issues and, and talk about some of the teachings that are not quite accurate or sometimes very deceptive that have crept into the church. We pray, Lord, that you'd give your people discernment. Give us wisdom, Father, and help us not to be deceived by some of these teachings. Help us to understand the subtle deceptions and some of the progression that leads us to believe some of these things that are not biblically accurate. And Lord, we pray as we always do, lead us by your Holy Spirit Guide us into all truth. Thank you for giving us everything we need for life and for godliness. And we thank you that there is a truth, and you are the source, Lord. And we thank you so much for this opportunity today. And we lift it up to you and pray that you would be glorified, that people would be edified and encouraged and informed. In Jesus' name, amen. The kingdom of God will be the future time in history when Jesus Christ, the last Adam, will return to planet Earth victoriously And after judging an ungodly world, he will set up his kingdom that will display God's righteousness in every area of life. And it's at this time that Christ will put on a display and uh, and a godly culture and a social structure within the world that, that we just don't see now. And here's a couple questions. If the kingdom of Jesus Christ is coming soon, if it is in the future, what do we do with our time on earth now, today, And what exactly is Kingdom Now theology? Today's guest writes, Understanding this overarching biblical theme of God's clearly revealed and sovereign plan is essential not only for believers in Christ to make sense of the chaos in our world, but also for the church to know and fulfill its God-ordained role in this era of world history. Dr. Andy Woods became a Christian at 16 years old. He graduated with high honors from the University of Redlands, California. He obtained a Juris Doctorate at Whittier Law School in California. He practiced law in 1998, began taking courses at Schaefer and Talbot Theological Seminaries. He earned a Master of Theology degree and a Doctor of Philosophy in Bible Exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. Andy Woods is the senior pastor at Sugarland Bible Church in Texas as well as author of several books, including The Falling Away, Ever Reforming, and The Middle East Meltdown. And today we are talking about his book, The Coming Kingdom. Pastor Andy, welcome to Standard for the Truth, brother. Hey, David. It's, uh, <clears throat> I count it as a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me back. Well, thank you. I know you're so busy with all that you've got going on. And before we get into the book, I want to start there. Um, you're a senior pastor. I've watched many of your sermons online. Thank you. And people who are in between churches, 
thank you. And people who are at home and can't make it to a church on Sunday, thank you for putting good, sound, biblical teachings out there on the Internet. Um, I also appreciate your weekly, I think it's weekly, you do the pastor's point of view. And uh, Yeah, we do. Yeah, that's a live Facebook Live thing we do, and then we put that on YouTube also. Yeah, with uh, Jim McGowan, your associate pastor there. I love those, and I like the the difference in it's a little bit more casual, laid back. You talk about issues in, in terms of uh, maybe what's going on in the world and the country. We'll, we'll get into a, a, one of those in a couple minutes regarding Israel. But um, what have you learned? I'm just curious. You put a lot of good material out there on the Internet. Can you share something about your experience about doing these live videos, public videos? Do you get um, feedback from the church? Do you get hits from uh, liberals? Or what are the pros and cons from doing these uh, videos, whether it be Facebook Live or your weekly teaching videos? Well, you know, it's it's interesting you asked that. It was actually my wife's idea that we you know, get on this YouTube channel and try these. And <clears throat> I thought at the time, well, gosh, who's going to listen? You know, maybe my, <laughs> my parents or something you know, out in California. But what we're discovering is that there are certain food groups that for whatever reason are being deprived to the flock. Mm. Uh, pastors, you know, either they're too busy or they're trying to get their church to get bigger or, you know, they think certain subjects will cause too much controversy or disunity, whatever the case may be, certain topics, you know, have been left out of the diet of the local flock in many, many places. And so consequently, you have a, a remnant out there. I noticed your show started with a reference to the remnant. There's mm-hmm. a starvation level in the remnant. Yes. And we've noticed that we've picked up a huge audience um, just based on uh, the fact that we're dealing with certain, you know, to put it into nutrition terms, additives and preservatives that people aren't getting from their pulpits or their local church pastors. And so we've been sort of surprised at how much interest there is, you know, in a lot of the things that we're addressing that won't get addressed in your typical local church. And I appreciate you putting those out there, and I, I affectionately refer to it as cotton candy Christianity. Uh, people are not getting the substance and the doctrine and things that will help them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. I'll, real quick, I noticed your weekly Bible study Wednesday nights that you also do, I think, on Facebook Live. Um, you guys meet for dinner before the Bible study, which I think is a great idea, and it reminds me of Acts 2.42, and I just want to just say thank you for giving us, other churches and other communities, great ideas for how to come together, not only for the teaching of God's Word, but for that all-important fellowship that we can't often get on a Sunday morning. Yeah, you know, you see that kind of thing going on in Acts 2, as you mentioned, and, you know, other places. And, um, you know, we do that every Wednesday. And we also do something very similar, which is very popular in our area, uh, the first Sunday of every month, which, based on which our church has decided to take communion uh, the first Sunday of every month. But we also have a church-wide meal after the service. And, uh, I don't know, it's just a great time to get to know folks that you may not be able to, you know, have a kind of a personal conversation with in a formal church environment setting. And so we found that those are great ways to enhance fellowship, uh, which is one of the things the church, local church is supposed to be about. Amen. 
Uh, before we get into your book, The Coming Kingdom, one more question on current events, and this one goes over to Israel. I read an article with uh, Ted Cruz praising Pompeo, his announcement on Judea and Sumeria, and he said it's up to our allies, our Israeli allies, to make their own decisions about what to do with their territories. And he said, for too long, the United States has been slow to acknowledge the basic reality that our Israeli allies have sovereignty over their territories. And Tuesday's decision also takes another step in, or today's decision, this was on the day it happened, takes another step in reversing the disgraceful legacy of the Obama administration and the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2334, which falsely denied Israel's sovereignty over its territories. Uh, before, I want to mention an article you sent me, which, thank you very much, from Caroline Glick. Pompeo's statement on Israeli settlements is a diplomatic turning point. She said some pretty amazing things in this article, Pastor Andy, and I just wanted to get your take on this whole thing. It's amazing. Well, it's, um, you know, the Trump administration has now done three major things. Uh, it's not a matter of talk. These are things they've actually done, you know, that are very pro-Israel. I mean, the first, as everybody knows, is he moved our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The second thing was the recognition that the Golan Heights up there in the north are actually Israeli, which was disputed by international law. And now, to my mind, this is the third major thing he's done, where he's, they're recognizing that the nation of Israel has the right to build settlements in its own territory, uh, Judea and Samaria. And, you know, I was somewhat dubious about Trump. I sort of <laughs> voted for him reluctantly. And he sort of turned out to be a real surprise mm -hmm. in a lot of areas for us evangelical conservative Christians particularly those of us, David, like ourselves, that are very interested in seeing um, a healthy relationship between uh, the United States and Israel and seeing our um, alliance with Israel continue, which was not happening under the prior administration. They were kind of following international law and sort of acquiesce to, as you mentioned, U.N. Resolution 2334 towards the end of Obama's term, which was challenging whether the Jews can build settlements in Judea and Samaria, and the Trump administration has reversed that. And so I say, you know, thumbs up. That puts us under the blessings of Genesis 12, verse 3, where God clearly says, I will bless those who bless you. And I appreciate Caroline Glick's uh, words, and she just really takes it up a notch when she says, it will be remembered as a turning point in Middle East history, referring to um, Mike Pompeo's statement, and the most significant shift in Middle East, in U.S. Middle East policy in the past generation. And I just want to share a quote, and uh, you can comment on it. We'll move on. Um, she said, quote, President Trump's extraordinary gesture of support for Israel and the rights of the Jewish people was evident in the historic statement. The U.S. has rightly concluded that falsely calling settlements illegal is not helpful for peace, and Monday will long be remembered as a turning point in U.S. history, and Pompeo's statement Monday that Israeli settlements are not illegal per se is the most significant shift in U.S. Middle East policy in the past generation. Jerusalem's status as Israel's cap capital has been a matter of U.S. law since 1996. So I uh, just want to get your f closing thoughts on this development. Well, it, you know, it's very um, uh, uh, heartening to see an administration that really isn't interested in constantly bowing down to your uh, international law, whether it's the EU, 
European Union or what's called the ICC, the International Criminal Court or United Nations Resolution 2334. I mean, they're just not bowing to that as prior administrations have done, and they're looking at the nation of Israel the way we have always looked at Israel as an independent nation, you know, and as an independent nation, they have a right to, you know, make and create settlements on their own land, Judea and Samaria. So the president is sort of proving himself to be a nationalist, as he campaigned on, and not an internationalist. And here's a guy that's come into office, and he's actually doing, you know, what he said he would do. What a thought, you know. And so I I don't know, I'm very heartened by the whole thing. And um, my attitude towards Trump has sort of changed favorably over the years. Pastor Andy Woods on Stand Up For The Truth, let's talk about the coming kingdom. What is the kingdom, and how is Kingdom Now theology changing the focus of the Church? Nice little transition here in the uh, foreword of your book, The Coming Kingdom. Uh, Dr. Thomas Ice said uh, toward the end of his comments, the Bible teaches that you cannot have the kingdom of God without Israel's involvement as the major instrument for its establishment. Thus, any future kingdom of God will come only as a result of the nation as a whole trusting in Jesus as their Messiah, referring to Israel. Would you like to comment on that before we dive in further? Yeah, I mean, I would just say this, um, kind of by way of introduction, you know, there's something called the universal kingdom, uh, in which God is always sovereign and always in control. And I clearly say at the beginning of the book that that is is not challenged in the book that I'm writing. Um, What I'm challenging is something different called the theocratic kingdom, where God indirectly rules through a man. Uh, he was It was supposed to happen through the first Adam, and we know what went wrong there, the fall of man in Genesis 3. So the goal of human history is how that structure that you find in Genesis 1, where God is ruling over the first Adam, is going to be restored to the earth one day. And we know that the first Adam is going to be ruled by God the Father, excuse me, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is going to be ruled over by God the Father in the Millennial Kingdom. And that is the structure that was lost in Genesis 1 that's going to actually get restored to the earth in the thousand-year kingdom. So the universal kingdom is always here, but this theocratic kingdom that I'm trying to explain is currently in postponement, And it will not be restored to the earth until you have a repentant Israel. And that won't happen until the events of the Great Tribulation period. And so since God never leaves the earth without a witness of himself, in the meantime, in this time of abeyance or postponement, we might call it, God is doing a completely different work through something called the church or the body of Christ. We as believers in Jesus today, scattered all over the world, are part of it. But this work of God that's been going on since the day of Pentecost and will conclude with the rapture is not to be confused in any way, shape, or form with the theocratic kingdom that's coming through a repentant Israel where God the Father rules over the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and he rules over the whole world in that thousand years. And what's happening today in evangelicalism is these categories that I'm trying to explain are getting kind of merged and meshed together. 
and it's leading to a lot of confusion concerning what the purpose of the church is. And so that's, in essence, why the book was written. Well, right at the very beginning of the book, and it's just 400-some pages, just an amazing, rich wealth of uh, just good, sound principles and an explanation of this concept, I understood that I have been in the habit in the past of saying, hey, we're all about doing the kingdom work, or we're advancing the kingdom of Christ in what we're doing, whether that through be through our church or in our culture as salt and light, but I think I'm going to make a conscious effort not to put put it in those terms, and I want you to answer or respond to the person who might say, aren't you splitting hairs about talking about we doing the work of the kingdom or establishing the kingdom here, and uh, you're saying, well, it is a future kingdom, and that's one of the principal points you drive home throughout the book. So how would you respond to someone like that? Well, I would say that if you have a business in the business world that's suffering— and you hire a business consultant to help you with your problem, that consultant, the very first question they're going to ask, if they're worth their salt, they're going to ask a very simple question. Why do you exist as a business? In other words, what unique uh, need, whether you're providing or a service or a good, are you filling through your existence? And if you can't answer that question, you really don't deserve to be in business. And what I've discovered is your average leader in a church, whether it's a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, if you ask them what is the purpose of the church and why are we here, you you know you ask three questions, uh, Christians that question, you'll probably get seven answers. <laughs> and a lot of it relates to the fact that the church can't define its purpose. And part of the reason the church can't today define its purpose as they they think they're the kingdom. And the reality of the situation is, biblically, we're not setting up the kingdom. The kingdom is something that Jesus is going to do subsequent to his return. The church, in the meantime, as it waits for the coming kingdom and prays as the Lord taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, we have a very specific purpose. And our purpose is not to set up the kingdom. It's basically threefold. Number one, to glorify God. Number two, to edify the saints. And number three, to fulfill the Great Commission. And the Great Commission passage is in Matthew 28. And the two other purposes that I gave, you'll find very clearly spelled out in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4. And that's why we exist. And when we start to merge our thinking with kingdom, you know, that we're setting up the kingdom, we can't even define why we exist. And if we can't define our purpose, how in the world can we be successful? And, you know, any business understands this, and we in the church world need to understand that as well. Wow. Uh, you gave me a nice segue to go into after we come back from break, uh, the, and then the Church struggles to define its purpose, but we, we are purpose-driven. I want to ask you about a quote from Pastor Rick Warren on that very idea, and uh, should we be building you know, megachurches and trying to build God's kingdom here, or should we understand that it is a future kingdom? We're talking with Pastor and Dr. Andy Woods and uh, about his book, The Coming Kingdom, and what kingdom now theology is, how it might be changing the focus of the church. When we come back, more with Andy Woods. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to David Fiorazzo. 
Our guest today, Pastor Andy Woods, and we are talking about Kingdom Now theology, and one of the quotes that is referenced in the early part of your book, Pastor uh, Andy, is from Rick Warren, and uh, he is standing before an audience, I'm not sure if it was at, no, at a stadium full of people, and he said, uh, you guys are telling God uh, they will do whatever it takes to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and he mentioned uh, God is going to use you to change the world, he told this audience. So um, what's wrong with what he said? And we're talking about, well, he took a little piece of the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven, and he said you're going to do whatever it takes to establish God's kingdom. Yeah, well, Rick Warren, you know, when he talks that way, is essentially talking about his uh, peace program, which I kind of defined later on in the book, and he talks a lot about, you know, how we've got to get out there and slay what he calls the five global giants, and, you know, those are basically various social things that we need to fix, and I use Rick Warren a lot in the book to demonstrate uh, how off-base we can get when we think that our purpose is to set up God's kingdom. The, the reality of the situation is we're not setting up any kingdom, and in fact, when you study the book of Daniel, chapter 2, you learn that God brings his own kingdom instantaneously at a specific time in history after the feet of iron and clay, the ten toes, which would be the kingdom of the Antichrist, has come on the scene. And after that kingdom comes and reaches its zenith, then God's kingdom comes and shatters it instantaneously. So we, we were never tasked with the responsibility of going around and establishing God's kingdom. What we're specifically told to do is we're told to fulfill the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, you know, largely becomes the Great Omission uh, when you begin to see yourself as being responsible for altering the structures of society, you know, which only Jesus Christ can do. And so you get confused on what your mission is, and you start thinking your job is to slay these five structural global giants, when in reality God never called the church to do that. Those five global giants, you know, social issues, are certainly going to be fixed by Jesus when he slays the Antichrist kingdom. But in the meantime, we're winning souls for the coming kingdom. Hmm. So we're citizens of a theocratic kingdom which is coming, and that's our job. And so that's the reason I kind of use Rick Warren there, because I felt a lot of his statements that he makes are somewhat confused on this issue. Yes, and he does think on those uh, global terms, those in, the influence, on how to influence people maybe and build, not, well, build the kingdom here. There was even a song we used to play on Christian radio that was called Build Your Kingdom Here, and it does. It's amazing how just simple wording or the language seems to tend toward what we are doing, and it's about us. And you ask the question, why do so many people seem to believe that the Messianic kingdom has already materialized? And I just want you to speak to that for a minute, because a lot of people, well-intentioned, Pastor Andy, well-intentioned people think that, well, Christians, we are supposed to be about the kingdom work or building the kingdom today, aren't we? So how do you respond to that? 
Well, there's just a lot of verbiage in Christianity, and I, like you, have used a lot of that stuff in the past, and I don't use it anymore. <laughs> you know, like we're, we sign emails, you know, do, you know, for the kingdom, and, mm. you know, there's conferences you can go to called Kingdom Builders and all of these kinds of things. But, what, you know, the reality of the situation is Jesus, once the kingdom was offered to first century Israel, and I explain all this in the book, and the offer was taken off the table, and the kingdom was put in a state of abeyance or postponement for 2,000 years, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, said, I will build my church. Um, In the interim, he's building his church. He's not building the kingdom. He's building his church, which which is a new man, and it's something completely and totally different. And so if we're going to be biblically correct and accurate, you know, what we're supposed to be doing is fulfilling the Great Commission. We're supposed to be cooperating with Jesus Christ in his great building project that he's doing in the church age. And that's largely what the Pauline epistles are there to instruct us about. You know, that's the section of Scripture that directly governs us. And there's nothing in there about the kingdom or establishing the kingdom or building the kingdom. I mean, the whole focus there is the church or the new man or the body of Christ and the roles that we are to have in that new body. And so, you know, just a lot of this is a lack of teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, Augustine, all the way back in the 4th century, uh, with his book, The City of God, and what's called amillennialism taught that the church equals the kingdom. And so we've sort of been under the spell of Augustine for all of these millennia and all of these centuries. And it just, a lot of this uh, verbiage, you know, seeps into our thinking and even our songs and even some of our favorite songs, like even the song Majesty. Uh, look at that song Majesty. It's all about kingdom authority. Hmm. And I, I don't mind singing that if you're talking about our future role, but that's <laughs> so, most of the time when that song is sung, it's talking about what we're doing now, which is which is unbiblical. Uh, you brought up Ephesians three and four earlier, and I love uh, that portion of scripture in Ephesians four, particularly talking about the purpose of uh, why God had established uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, building up the body of Christ so we can unify in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Um, Could you differentiate between building up the body of Christ now, the church, and the future kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Sure. I mean, when the kingdom comes, per Daniel 2, I mean, it will as Thomas I says in the foreword of the book I wrote, it will structurally change this world. I mean, there's going to be actually geophysical, geopolitical changes. And that's those are the kinds of things that the church is sort of hungering for now. Uh, but the reality of the situation is those changes aren't going to come uh, until Jesus cataclysmically returns like lightning at the end of the tribulation period, and without the help of anybody, establishes his long-awaited kingdom on the earth in fulfillment of mass amounts of Old Testament and some New Testament prophecies. So what we're doing now is we're not doing that. I mean, only Jesus can do that at a specific time in history. What we are to do now is we're to participate in Christ's body, and through the different means he's given us, 
like, for example, my spiritual gift is a gift of pastor-teacher. You know, I'm not busy uh, building any kingdom. What I'm trying to do is to teach the full counsel of God's Word to equip people in my church so they can go out and win other people to Christ, people I'll never have contact with, you know, their family and people that they work with uh, during the during this current age. And so my function as a pastor building up the body of Christ through the teaching of God's Word is completely different than establishing the kingdom, which only Jesus will do. We're speaking with Pastor Andy Woods and his book, The Coming Kingdom, and talking about Kingdom Now Theology, a rich resource, well-researched, and a lot of great information in here. Pastor Andy, I want you to clarify something that may be confusing to some listeners. Is there any crossover uh, between Kingdom Now theology and Christian dominionism? And what are some differences? Because it sounds like they, they kind of meld together in some ways and, and when it comes to impacting culture. Yeah, you know, basically what's happening is people are adopting a non-biblical definition of the kingdom. They want it to be some kind of amorphous concept with no meaning, you know, some kind of spiritual reality that's happening now, which is outside of the way the Bible defines it. And the reason that's popular is that it allows people to fill in that meaning with their own political ideology. So you have people like Jim Wallace, for example, liberation theology from the left, mm-hmm. and they want to fill the, the, the word kingdom with, uh, you know, Marxism or, you know, redistribution of wealth. And then you have people from the right, uh, people that are basically reconstructionists and dominion theologians, you know, who essentially want to take the law of Moses and make it, you know, the law of the land in the United States, uh, Gary North and Gary DeMar and, and people of that variety, you know, are of that mindset. And they want they want a loosey-goosey understanding of the word kingdom, and they want to fill it with their right-wing understanding just as aggressively as the left wants to do with their left-wing understanding. And so both forms of it, at the end of the day, is a form of kingdom now theology. It's just a matter of whose politics you agree with, you know, the right or the left. Yes. And the reality is none of them are correct, uh, because we're not in the kingdom now, and we're in the church age, and let's get our you know priorities from the Pauline epistles rather than all these kingdom-type passages, you know, Old Testament, New Testament. We are in the church age, and the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is future. Uh, two important points that seem, you know, for most of us may be obvious, but we need to clarify and continue to hammer home because of the uh, influence of the Kingdom Now teachings. Um, in a recent study or teaching that you've been going through, it might not be recent, I think you might have been going through it for a year or two, you cite nine ways that kingdom theology impacts the church, uh, things like the social gospel, which you alluded to, the social justice bent, and then interfaith alliances, anti-Semitism. And one, I think, is very interesting, and I think you've been talking a little bit about that already here in this program, building the wrong kingdom. Before we go on to the next question, are there any points you want to give our audience from what you've been teaching about building the wrong kingdom? Yeah, you know, that last uh, part of the book, you know, could be the most important part of it. Maybe I should have written that first. <laughs> but 
I, I was simply trying to demonstrate that a lot of times we as evangelicals are shooting at false doctrines that we don't like, like the prosperity gospel and other other things like that. And we don't really understand. We're, we're shooting at the symptoms of the problem, but we're not addressing the foundation. And I tried to demonstrate in that final third of the book that you're alluding to that those false doctrines, there's nine of them mentioned there, grow up in a certain soil. And the soil for all of those is kingdom now theology. In other words, if you don't have kingdom now theology, then those nine false doctrines can't you know, thrive and survive and thrive. And one of the things I mentioned is this idea that you can actually get the church building the wrong kingdom for this simple reason, that the next kingdom on the horizon, when you look at the chronology of the statue in Daniel 2, the next kingdom on the horizon is not God's kingdom. It's the Antichrist kingdom, mm. the feet of iron and clay. Now, wouldn't Satan be kind of sneaky? I mean, we all agree Satan is the great deceiver. What a great deception to pull up, pull on the church in her final moments, you know, just prior to the rapture, when we should be investing our time elsewhere, to get us involved in building the wrong kingdom. Because if you're focused on building the kingdom, and the next kingdom on the horizon is not Christ's kingdom, it's not the stone cut without human hands, wouldn't it be a deception to one day realize that, oh my goodness, all of this time I've spent building the kingdom, I've been building the wrong kingdom. Mm. I've been building the Antichrist kingdom, which is the next one chronologically on the horizon. Wow. Um, you know, when I read a book like yours, and I haven't read the whole thing, when, when I listen to you explain it, it just reminds me of how much I don't know and how much I still need to understand. And so, Lord, we pray for wisdom for those who are listening and for myself to get this so we can, you know, study God's Word and see what Scripture teaches about it as well. Um, you mentioned, uh, actually, the story on Israel, the story on the, the uh, Mike Pompeo announcement on Judea and Samaria. In, in the end of the book, and I want to give you an opportunity to jump there in case we probably will run out of time, but you have in chapter 25, anti-Israelism and Kingdom Now Theology. And is is anti-Israelism, does, is, is that kind of the same thing as anti-Semitism? Is that what develops from this, these things that impact the Church and their thinking? Right. Well, you know, the point I'm trying to make there is if the Church thinks it's the new Israel, and that's basically Kingdom Now Theology. Replacement uh, theology? Re yeah, replacement theology, where you take Israel's promises and you deliteralize them, and through a spiritualizing method of interpretation, you know, you just make it sound as if all of those prophecies are being fulfilled today. Now, just as a side note, it's very interesting that people never incorporate into the Church Israel's curses. <laughs> There's a lot of curses there. They leave those behind for the Jewish people. <laughs> but the blessings they deliteralize and yes. bring over into the Church. Mm -hmm. And if, if that's your mindset, and countless denominations think this way, you know, if that's your mindset, then what do you do with the real Israel in the Middle East? Well, you either become apathetic towards Israel, or in some cases you become outright belligerent, and you do what I quote even one of our greats, Martin Luther, towards the end of the book, who is on record in a written book called The Jews and Their Lies, which spans about 80 pages. 
Uh, he went on towards the end of his life, uh, and, and John Calvin was uh, was like this too, but he was a little bit more circumspect in how he went about it. But Luther went on a rant against the Jews in this book, The Jews and Their Lies. And many theologians, excuse me, historians will tell you that when he did that in Germany, it laid the foundation for ultimately the Holocaust, which would happen generations later under Adolf Hitler. And so if if the church loses its focus that God still has a future work for the nation of Israel, the church either could care less about Israel today in the Middle East or the Jews, or in some cases it finds itself cooperating with the world. Like, for example, what's called the BDS movement that's mm-hmm. being taught in all these college campuses today, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, trying to sort of portray Israel as an apartheid state just as we did South Africa back in the 80s, the reality of the situation is Israel is not an apartheid state. You have non-Israelis in the highest levels of leadership, so that can't be an apartheid state. But the church actually jumps on board with the BDS movement. And I could name, I won't do it, but I could name some mainline denominations Hmm. in Christendom that are right now on board with the boycott, divestment, and sanctions of the nation of Israel. And that's what happens when you lose sight of what God's Word says concerning the future of Israel. So you're making the point that Kingdom Now theology can lead to a natural anti-Israel position and false beliefs about Israel, the people of Israel, and what is in the Bible written about God's chosen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at the time period when Kingdom Now theology flourished the most in the Church, post-Augustine, all the way through the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages for a thousand years, and you see Christians in Christian architecture, Christian art, making all kinds of anti-Israel, anti-Jewish statements. And my point is the reason that anti-Semitism flourished was in a climate of Kingdom Now uh, theology. And I'm sensing that as Satan is trying to move us more in the direction of replacement theology, I'm I'm concerned that the same level of either uh, apathy towards the Jews or outright belligerence and antagonism towards the Jews is going to resurface in our day. And so that's my concern. Historically, it's already happened. Uh, the statement by Martin Luther, you know, proves that. Hmm. And I'm concerned that history may repeat itself, you know, in our general time period. I share that concern with you, uh, Pastor Andy, and I see that uh, the Church is falling for this. But not only that, it the fire gets stoked as even Christian kids go to college, and, you know, today's universities are very uh, politically correct, anti-Israel, and they get they get that driven home even more. So no wonder they come out believing some of the things they do. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, more with Pastor Andy Woods on his book, The Coming Kingdom, and What is Kingdom Now Theology? If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to David Fiorazzo. What is Kingdom Now Theology? How might that be changing the focus of the church. We're talking with Pastor Andy Woods about his book, The Coming Kingdom, and it's in our podcast post. I believe last night it is also on the Stand Up for the Truth Facebook page. Right now, we know there are a lot of doctrines, false doctrines, that 
Kingdom Now theology can lead to, but one of them that's very seductive and clearly takes down a lot of people is the prosperity gospel. And so, Pastor Andy, I'd love for you to help us see and understand that transition on the focus on Kingdom Now theology, how that leads in that direction of the prosperity gospel. Yeah, well, the prosperity gospel, people are familiar with it because it has a huge influence on so-called Christian television. Not that everybody on Christian television believes this, but many do. And prosperity gospel is basically the idea that you're the kid of a king, and because you're the kid of a king, you're entitled to uh, health in your body, and you're basically entitled to wealth. And if you're not accessing those things or experiencing those things, then it's obviously because of some kind of unconfessed sin in your life, or it's because you haven't accessed or learned the verbal laws to command those things into existence. And, you know, as Christians, we're we're very upset at that doctrine, partly because I like to call it double jeopardy. You know, a person in a wheelchair, for example, I'm thinking of Johnny Erickson Tata, who God has used greatly around the world. Yes. Um, She's got to go through life now with double jeopardy, because A, she's in a wheelchair, and B, she's got some well-intentioned Christian telling her she's in that wheelchair because she doesn't have enough faith or hasn't spoken the right law Mm. or, you know, something to that effect. And so it's a terrible, emotionally crippling thing to do to people. And so we're very upset about this doctrine. You know, I, the first, my first exposure to it or reading a good critique on it was by the book by Michael Horton, I think it was back in the late 1980s, early 90s, called The Agony of Deceit. But what most people don't understand is that doctrine flourishes in a kingdom now environment for this simple reason, that according to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, you know, where it talks about the lame leaping like a deer and the, uh, you know, the ears of the deaf unstopped, etc., etc., the kingdom is a time period of total healing and total miracles. And Amos 9, verse 13, you know, talks about how the plowman will overtake the reaper, and there's going to be great agricultural prosperity during the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so if we are indeed in the kingdom now, then people ought to be healthy, (laughs) if they're Christians, (laughs) and they ought to be rich. And I do quote in the book uh, a citation from D.R. McConnell, who draws that connection for us, Uh, in his book Against the Prosperity Movement, and he's one of the few I've seen do this, connect this doctrine to Kingdom Now theology. So there are certain doctrines that just sort of grow up in our midst that we're disgusted with, but we don't understand that those doctrines come from the right soil, and the soil is Kingdom Now theology. You also uh, talk about so many other concepts in the book, and I'm looking at some of the chapters. Uh, You go back to the prophets that anticipate the kingdom, uh, the kingdom was offered to first century Israel, the kingdom's postponement. You talk about mysteries, and you also use a word, and I would like for you to clarify and explain what dispensationalism means, why you feel that approach to Scripture is important in this setting. Yeah, people will see, if they're using the King James Version, I think it is, they'll see the word dispensation in their English translation in Ephesians 1 chapter 1, verse 10, Ephesians 3, verse 2. It's just a 
translation from a Greek word. Uh, the Greek word is oikonomia, which is a compound word, meaning two words making up one word. Oikos is part of that word, meaning house. And namos is part of that word, meaning rules, house rules. In other words, the rules of the Bible change from age to age, depending on what time period you're in. The plan of salvation is always the same, but God's basic... Uh, structure of rules changes. You can see that as you go from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 3. I mean, obviously you get to Genesis 3 and the rules changed because we have death and other things happening which weren't existing in Genesis 1 and 2. And so this concept of dispensations is very important to understand because we're not living in a time period right now where the kingdom is being offered and we're not living in a time period now where the kingdom, the theocratic kingdom, is being established. We're living in the church age where a completely different set of rules apply. And for us to be effective in what God has called us to do, we need to understand what rules govern our age, the rules that have been governing this age for the last 2,000 years. And we need to cooperate with those rules and not things that God is going to do when he changes the rules again, when he establishes his long-awaited kingdom. And I like how uh, later in the book, actually throughout the book, you quote people who make try to make an argument for uh, Kingdom Now theology and how they come to this, how they come to interpret, um, the theologians even, interpret the Bible this way. I'm looking at chapter 17, and I'm thinking about scriptures about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, we think, you know, we know he comes from the line of David, he's the seed of David, and the question is asked, is Jesus currently reigning on David's throne? Uh, we have the idea, Pastor Andy, that Jesus is on the throne. Uh, we have the picture in Scripture that he's at the right hand of the Father, and he even sat down because his high priestly work is finished. But could you give us a little insight into that? chapter, which is he, Jesus, currently reigning on David's throne or not? Yeah, I mean, Christ basically has three ministries, you know, prophet, priest, and king. He was essentially prophet in his first coming. He functioned as a prophet and, you know, trying to draw Israel back to her covenant. That's what is meant by repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And who will also f function as king over the whole earth with Satan banished in the abyss for a thousand years after his second coming. So if he's not prophet, and he did that in his first coming, and if he's not functioning as king, because he's going to do that in his second coming, what in the world is he doing now? Well, what he's doing now is he's functioning as high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that's basically what the whole book of Hebrews is about, where he's pursuing a wonderful ministry. Mm. And I list in the book many things that he is doing now, but those roles that he is executing now aren't to be confused with him ruling with a rod of iron uh, over the entire world, which is what he will do when he returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation period and takes his seat on David's throne. And if folks will look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, they'll see two thrones there. The throne that Jesus is on now at the right hand of the Father. He's on the Father's throne where he's executing his role as high priest. And there's a future throne which he will be on, his own throne, 
in Jerusalem on the earth, in fulfillment, by the way, of the promises of the Davidic covenant given in Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. And Jesus is not now on David's throne. As, hmm. as, many, as much as people want to say he's on David's throne, he's not on David's throne. The Bible is very clear that he is on the Father's throne, and he is functioning at the right hand of the Father. Yes. And he today is not functioning in his regal authority. He's functioning as high priest. Mm -hmm. And so this is very important to understand, and it gets confused when people take those two thrones and merge them together. And it's largely an outworking of taking the three offices of Christ, at least two of those offices, priest and king, and merging them together, and that's part of the confusion today in the Church. Thank you, Pastor Andy. Prophet, priest, and king. And I just turned to Revelation three, twenty-one. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I love that, and I, I know I've read that many, many times, but I thank you for making that clarification. Um, we're thankful as believers here on this earth that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for the saints, yep. and uh, we're so thankful that his uh, ministry for us and his interceding for us. That's that's powerful. I think we kind of take that for granted, or maybe maybe we don't understand his work before he come returns to take up lordship. Well, you know, a lot of people think, and I quote some folks in the book who, you know, incorrectly think this, they think, well, if you don't believe Jesus is reigning as king right now, then you don't think he's doing anything. <laughs> that's and a leap. The reality of the situation is nothing could be further from the truth. He has a wonderful ministry today, uh, but it's just not the regal ministry that he will have once the kingdom is established. But he's doing things for us all of the time, not the least of which you already mentioned. Uh, he's interceding for us. I mean, boy, I'm sure, gra I'm sure <laughs> grateful for that. Mm. He's giving to the Church spiritual gifts. Uh, he is functioning as our advocate. Um, he's actually sustaining, not creating, but he's sustaining the world as it exists in his office as high priest. And I would just encourage people to read the book of Hebrews. It's all about the grace that God gives us as Christians in the midst of severe trials. And I know people out there are going through some very severe stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, a resource available in Christ's high priestly ministry at the Father's right hand. So he's doing a lot of wonderful, wonderful things. It's just not to be confused with the kingdom. And so this idea that if he's not reigning as king on David's throne now, which, by the way, they take David's throne and they have to allegorize it and transport David's throne into heaven, and David's throne in the Bible is never portrayed as a celestial heavenly reality. It's always earthly in Jerusalem. But people think if he's not reigning on David's throne now, he's not doing anything. And the area of Christology... Uh, the doctrine that we're talking about is basically called the present session of Christ. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, in his volumes on systematic theology, gave a lot of place to this. 
And it's a wonderful ministry he's doing now at the Father's right hand. It's Mm. just not to be confused with the coming kingdom. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andy. We're talking about Pastor Andy Wood's book, The Coming Kingdom. One more, and we only have a couple minutes to try to squeeze this in. I apologize if it's going to require a much more lengthy of an answer, but Jesus refers to uh, Satan as the ruler of this world. He says judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Paul refers to Satan as the god of this age who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. Can you clarify Satan's role as either god, small g, or ruler of this world to be cast out? Well, yeah, those passages in and of themselves demonstrate that we're not in the kingdom, because (laughs) Revelation 20 is very, very clear that when the kingdom has come, Satan will be bound in the abyss. And so we're living in an interesting time. I, you know, my background is in the legal profession, and I like to use legal analogies. It's the difference between conviction and sentencing. You know, if someone is convicted of a crime, you know, by the, by a jury of their peers, then they later come before that same court or sometimes a different court for sentencing. And so that's sort of where we're living in between. We're living in between Satan's conviction. He's been convicted. He's a defeated foe. Amen. And he's going down. We know that. Yes. Countless Bible verses tell us that. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, many others. But the reality of the situation is the sentence hasn't been imposed yet. And the sentence won't be imposed until the kingdom is established on the earth. And Satan is living in between his conviction and his sentencing. And that's why he's trying to confuse as many people as possible Hmm. and take as many people down as he possibly can. I mean, I think I would do that, too, (laughs) if there was no hope for me. And the only thing I could look forward to was a punishment that was coming. So I hope that helps a little bit clarify Satan's role in the present. Yes, and you reminded me real quick before we wrap up, Pastor Andy, you shared uh, a meme or whoever is on your Facebook page shared a meme of your quote about Satan knowing his future. Can you paraphrase that, or do you have that in front of you or to your memory that you can share that with us? Yeah, that that was actually, you know, I don't have enough creativity to come up with these memes. <laughs> somebody came up with that, and they put something I apparently said in a teaching on it, and I said, gosh, that sounds pretty good. I <laughs> I don't want to waste this person's work, so I <laughs> reposted it. But <laughs> basically, you know, to sort of paraphrase, it's the um, it's the reason why there's so few churches that teach prophecy today. Mm. I mean, I get so many emails from people saying, you know, I can't find a church that teaches Bible prophecy, and I think there's a reason for that. It's ultimately say, satanic, because if you were Satan, why would you want a book proclaimed that clearly spells out your doom. I mean, if there was some book out there that predicted with 100% accuracy how I would meet my demise, (laughs) I would do everything I could do to make sure that book doesn't get read, or I would try to depublish it, or unpublish it, or discredit it. And that's basically what Satan is doing today with this subject of Bible prophecy. He doesn't want it taught because it spells out his demise or his doom. So there's actually a spiritual reason as to why we're having the struggle that we're having in evangelicalism concerning the teaching and proclamation of Bible prophecy. Amen. I couldn't have said that better. Thank you. We'll put that in our post today with the podcast. We're speaking with Pastor Andy Woods, The Coming Kingdom. We will do this again, God willing, uh, within another month or so. Thank you, and you have a nice Thanksgiving, Pastor Andy. God bless you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet.
When we come back, we'll wrap up today's show, tell you about the upcoming guests we have. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. Now, here's David Fiorazzo. All right, running a little over today, so we've got to wrap it up pretty quick, but thank you so much for listening. Our guest tomorrow, Jay Siegert of The Starting Point Project. It's been several months since he's been with us, so it's good to have him back tomorrow. God bless you, and always keep speaking the truth about things that matter.